Dear respected time, dear beautiful friends, I do love the bell. It's so lovely and, and uh, it just penetrates us when we're really there for it. It's great. I also know that um, while you've been in here singing um, beautiful practice songs, I was singing the Beatles. <laughs> All you need is love. It seems fitting. Um, so, I can't believe we've been here such a short period of time. Uh, but our focus so far has primarily been on the uh, first of the three Dharma seals, the teachings on emptiness, our practices, um, meditation. And our recitations have been to encourage our awareness of ourselves as part of that stream of life. Uh, that's, I think, where we start when we look at um, how can we be in the world. And the answer is not separate. One answer is not separate. So we have the Heart Sutra and all of these things to remind us that there's no part of the cosmos that isn't part of us. No. Uh, I think it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Joni Mitchell saying about we are stardust, we are golden. I'm not sure which one of them wrote it. That's what That would have been my guess, Joni Mitchell. Um, Yeah, it's so amazing that it's true. So we come to recognize that. And when we, when we feel it, when we experience it completely, then we can move safely into the recognition that there is a self. We don't want to be attached to any of the teachings. You know, if there were not a self, we could all be on one cushion, right? It'd be pretty, pretty crowded, I think. But we need all these different cushions and chairs and benches and seats because there is a self. And some of us are cold and some of us are too warm and some of us are just right. You know, each, each self has something different. And I think it was the first evening when, it might have been yesterday, when I said something about it being easier to forgive ourselves and others and, um, and became aware that that wasn't necessarily true. So as we move into this, um, the next of the three Dharma seals, the Dharma seal of aimlessness, and into a recognition of ourselves, I wanted to offer us a guided meditation, short one, but um, so that we can begin anew with this self that we recognize as part of everything. So, it's a, um, some of you may be familiar with the beginning anew process where we engage in um, certain steps 
often with another person. Unfortunately, we often bring out the beginning of new ceremony only when we have difficulty. Uh, it really, it's really valuable way to create um, relationships uh, and not just overcome difficulty. It's very valuable for that as well. But to recognize and say to the, the person with whom you're having difficulty, perhaps, you know, thank you for your beautiful seeing today. It really nourished me. And I appreciate your diligent presence and wholehearted uh, participation in Sangha. And when you said such and such to me, or did such and such, I felt this hurt of some sort. And so to to come into to come into beginning anew is not just, you know, you really pissed me off. <laughs> I mean, there's several things wrong with that, right? You didn't do, you didn't piss me off. I chose to be pissed off. But uh, um, in beginning anew, we we come fully into recognizing and appreciating the person, um, as well as being able to talk about the difficulties. And one reason I say that we, we should engage in beginning anew with others when the difficulty is not there is because then we get into the habit of communicating with the other person about what we appreciate, about where our tender spots are, and um, we can be more open to understanding where their tender spots are so we can create a relationship that's fuller when we participate in and it doesn't have to be a formal ceremony. There is a formal beginning a new ceremony. But um, to practice beginning a new in difficulty, we have to feel safe. Because if we feel attacked or defensive instead of loved, then beginning a new is very difficult. Uh, you know. If we recognize that the other person is speaking to us with love, then we can hear the words about how our behavior or our words may have contributed to suffering in the other person. So I think it's a, it's a really good practice for conflict resolution but it's also really good practice for building relationships. And as we move into the second Dharma seal, we're shifting a little bit of our focus on our relationship within ourselves. So I wanted to offer this meditation that is um, based on beginning anew to support us in going that direction. I have a cheat sheet. So I know you were sitting before I came in. If you need to stretch or round your back or unfold for a moment, please take care of yourself. And as we begin to settle, just come back into awareness of breathing in and breathing out is the first part of the meditation. 
slowly present. Breathing in, I recall a time when I engaged in positive, nourishing thoughts, words, and actions. Something that represents my wonderful capacity. Breathing out, I embrace that wonderful capacity present in me. Remembering my wonderful capacity. Embracing my wonderful capacity. Breathing in, I recall a time when my unskillful thoughts, words, or actions contributed contributed to suffering, my own suffering or someone else's. Breathing out, I am determined to understand the roots of my unskillfulness so that I might transform and no longer contribute to suffering. Remembering my unskillfulness, determined to understand and transform my unskillfulness.
Breathing in, I recall a time when I felt hurt. Breathing out, I acknowledge and embrace my hurt with love and mindfulness. Remembering my hurt. Breathing out, I rest in the embrace of my loving son. Aware of my sangha, resting in the sangha.
So the the second of the three Dharma seals that I want to touch on this weekend is the Dharma seal of aimlessness, which seems sort of contrary to engaged practice, right? How can I make a change in the world if I don't do anything? Except that it's not about laziness, and it's not about inaction. It's about being present. It's about recognizing what's here. You know, it, when we look at the, the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. We got that one, right? You know? <laughs> suffering exists. Yeah, okay, now what? Um, we all want to get out of it as fast as we can, but a lot of times that means that we don't look at the causes and conditions and really understand the suffering so that we can move forward. Um, and this, I know, I recognize, I'm, I'm, I hope you recognize that I'm just sharing my experience from the teachings. There's, the truth is in our own experiences, not in what someone else tells us or what we read in a book. The words are just intended to support us and to share with each other. Um, so we, we actually already touched on aimless, aimlessness yesterday in the five mindfulness trainings the training that mentions that uh, I'm aware that happiness content depends on my state of mind and not on external conditions. Um, when the I, I've actually I'll put in another plug for prison volunteers. Um, you can't imagine the joy you can have in that work. Uh, I've volunteered in the prisons for about 20 years until this. I feel like I've just gone on a commercial break. <laughs> Is that what you um, I volunteered in the North Carolina prisons for about 20 years until our legislature in its wisdom decided to eliminate all of the clergy and uh, all the chaplains in the prisons uh, to save money. And I mean, I was volunteer, but that meant that in some of the prisons there was no chaplain to be present. And we go in through the... Um, through the um, religious department. It's some, some um, systems you go in as a volunteer, not religious. I don't really know how that part works. But they changed it, and then, they, then they, we figured out how to get in, and then so we kept going. I was going every week for this uh, past six years until the legislature in its wisdom, or maybe it was the Department of Correction in its wisdom, um, decided that there couldn't be any religious groups that didn't have at least 10 people on a regular basis. And finding 10 Buddhists in the North Carolina prison on a regular basis is not an easy task. There's some sanghas that do have, um, do have, there's one sangha that does have 10 people on a regular basis, but it's not one I could go into um, all the time. Uh, but if that's an option for you, I really encourage it. You might be surprised. I suspect you will. Um, but the reason I brought that up was because when the mindfulness trainings were rewritten to say, I'm aware that all the, 
all the conditions for my happiness are present now. And we were, we were doing monthly recitations in the prison, either the five or the 14 alternate months. And uh, I was a little bit nervous about taking this one in for us to read because really all the conditions are present for my happiness right now. Um, no color, a lot of noise. not very pleasant conditions, even in the non-cell and non-pod portions of the prison. So I was really, it almost, one of the things I try to do when I go into the prisons is that it's, it's uh, actually when I go just about anywhere, it's not really about me. So I don't want to be, I don't want to, especially in prisons, I don't want to um, say, okay, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. There's a reason for a particular framework to support our practice. But when you're going into a situation where the ability to make choices is already limited, it doesn't feel right to me to go in and say, I'm going to make this other decision for you. But we were reciting the trainings, and that's what we'd been doing for years. And I had to bring the new ones in because that's what our teacher was offering at this point. And I was so amazed that, that one of the inmates, he's, he's in for life. I was um, working with people who weren't going to get out for the most part. Um, he also became an order of interbeing aspirant with Ty's approval. Um, but after we finished the ceremony, we had a little bit of sharing time. And the first thing he said was, I love this part. All the conditions for my happiness are present right now. So I keep thinking, if Carl can do it, how can I question that at all? And yet we do, we grasp. We uh, keep grasping. It's part of our nature. We want something different. I want a little more light in the Dharma Hall. Not right now. That wasn't, that wasn't a request. <laughs> um, but yesterday when I was inviting the bell, I couldn't actually see the bell, so I missed it once. <laughs> so it was better for me not to invite the bell. Um, and I, I, I found this poem in my, that I wanted to share that I, you know, there's nothing I can say that hasn't already been said. And I think that's thought, that thought is what led me to the Beatles, by the way. <laughs> nothing you can say that do that hasn't been done, something like that. Do, 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 do. So, <laughs> this is by someone named Holly Hughes. And I, I don't remember where I got it, but she calls it Mind Wanting More. Only a beige slat of sun above the horizon, like a shade pulled not quite down. Otherwise, clouds. Sea rippled here and there, birds reluctant to fly. The mind wants a shaft of sun to stir the gray porridge of clouds. An osprey to stitch sea to sky with its barred wings. Some dramatic music. A symphony, perhaps a Chinese gong. 
But the mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun. One more clear night in bed with the moon. One more hour to get the words right. One more chance for the heart, hiding, heart in hiding, to emerge from its thicket in dried grasses. As if this quiet day with its tentative light weren't enough. As if joy weren't strewn all around. Thank you, Holly. Our regular practice is so important to our resting and healing and preparing to be engaged in the world. If we can't be here right now, we can't be anywhere. Um, And our practice is so healing for us individually, for our hearts so that they can be engaged. I remember I, I read a, um, I was reading a medical examiner's testimony in a, in a trial, and he was talking about um, physical dynamics and what happens. Um, I don't even remember why, but I, I remember what he said, which was medically, The heart heals when it rests. And I thought, that's right. And not because I'm a doctor's daughter, but because when we can let our hearts rest, they really do heal. And maybe they come out a little different different shape or a scar when we heal from difficulties. But we have to allow our hearts to heal and to nourish ourselves with things like like retreats and regular sangha practice, and maybe those four parts of the novice handbook that I was talking about earlier, or one of them, whatever nourishes you. You know, um, Ty was in California when the planes hit the towers on 9-11. A generation ago, isn't it? And the monastics wanted to do something. It was important to respond, they felt. They wanted to go and engage and be present. And Ty said, go to the beach. Go play on the beach. 
And that's, as I understand it, that's one of the aspects of preparing for action. It wasn't that he didn't do anything. He went to Riverside, the Riverside Church in New York after that. But we have to be ready. And part of that readiness is, is the recognition and insight that, in, that emptiness brings us. And part of it is being aware that the conditions for our happiness are present right now. Aimlessness can take many forms. Maybe it's sitting still. Maybe it's sitting at the beach. Maybe it's letting our hearts heal. And maybe it's being very active outwardly while being stable and solid inwardly which is one of the great gifts of Sangha, to support us in that. When I was thinking about aimlessness this morning and about um, transformation, because the question arose in my mind, why do we practice? And, And transformation was one of the answers. Um, I was reminded of an experience that I had in Plum Village. Um, The year of the hat, I think, that Rowan mentioned. Um, I I think I said yesterday, I said recently, uh, that my father died in his 30s. I was um, 11. And I know there, there are probably other people sitting among us who um, have lost a parent or a loved one young. And it's really, um, in my experience, it was, it was huge. Uh, it was really difficult. And um, even though I've told you all this pretty, pretty soon after we've met, a couple of days, it's not always something that comes out anymore because of the transformation that practice offered for me. And it was really the practice of aimlessness. I used to, I used to cry a lot and for 30 years. Um, I used to, um, and the, um, I don't know how to say this. I used to really enjoy the energy of men, and I actually still do, but not in that sort of yearning way that I needed that energy to be around because I didn't have it. Um, and it is different. It is a different energy. Um, So there was a lot of suffering. And when I was in Plum Village, Ty was talking about transforming our suffering and how we could call on our ancestors. And that year, I walked and walked and walked for the several weeks I was in Plum Village. And um, I was 
determined, because Ty said to call on your ancestors, I was absolutely determined that I was going to use my ancestors and my ancestral power to uh, transform this suffering. I was going to fix it. I'm the one, I'm, the, I'm a big sister. I'm a little sister too, but I'm a big sister. And that's the strong quality in me. Um, uh, so when... Um, When, after my father died, my, I became more of the center of the family. My mother worked, and, um, and as we got old, when I was 20, I got custody of my 15-year-old brother, um, and then my sister came to live with me, the eyebrow sister. Um, <laughs> I can say that because I, I think you'll never meet her. <laughs> Um, so I was always the one who was really strong, so and I could fix things, right? And I can—I mean, I—I I take, I like to take, I still like to take things apart. Um, most of the time they work when I put them back together, but not always. But so um, my, that was my approach to the suffering. Once Ty had given me the tools, that I was going to fix this, and so I put a lot of effort into it and a lot of energy. And it's—I um, had spontaneously arise in my head this image of a, um, a tornado. For some reason it was on this side. I don't know if that's significant, but that's why I'm doing this. So, And at the top of the tornado was my face at 11, going round and around. The girl was caught. Um, that's a very unusual thing to have happen to me to have this image that I was just walking around with. And so Ty said, call on your ancestors. So first I called on my father, who was a very strong man from eastern Tennessee. And um, that didn't seem to work. So that was my blood ancestors. Um, and then I thought about my land ancestors. And I really don't know much about Pecos Bill, but what I remember is at the end of the story, he lassos a tornado and rides off. So I thought, perfect. <laughs> so in my image, sitting in meditation, I called on my land ancestor, Pecos Bill, as an American, to lasso that thing and get that girl down so that we could just move on, right? This is about moving on. We, want, we know suffering exists. There was no question that my suffering existed. Um, and that didn't work either. It didn't work. What did work was when, without naming it, I practiced with aimlessness. And I was sitting, I was sitting in the Dharma Hall listening to Thay's Dharma talk. And um, she was still there. And I said, okay, I'm just going to sit down with you. I'll be right here. And I sat at the, I, I know this is all in my mind, but it's also not exactly created by my mind, uh, or conscious, let's see, what's the word? Intentionally created by my mind. I didn't intentionally create this. So I, I sat down at the foot, and then like one of those camping cups, I don't know if you have them out here that go like that, the tornado came down. 
and she came and sat with me. And she gave me a little present that's hard to describe. But that was the practice of transformation through aimlessness. This is one of my most powerful, not the only one, but my most powerful experiences of practicing with aimlessness in order to really be present with suffering, not to immediately try to change it. Um, I like to fix things, but some things you just have to be present for. And the practice of aimlessness helps us, helps me uh, approach suffering without always trying to fix it. I might know the best way. I'm pretty sure I do. But it's not always helpful. It's not always kind. It's not always what I want to be. Um, the yoga teacher, uh, Deborah Adele, wrote, a, I know we have a lot of people who do yoga. I don't know if you've read her book, uh, The Yamas and Niyamas. It's a beautiful book, great stories. Um, and one of the things she says in there is that um, thinking we know a better way for others is a subtle form of violence. And I think that's true. I also think there's a slight twist to that about the way we approach our own difficulties um, that involves trying to skip over the suffering but just to find that better way. That that can be a subtle form of violence for ourselves as well. So she says, thinking that we know a better way for others is a subtle form of violence. And when we, when we did the recitation this morning, the sutra, um, on the five ways of putting an end to anger, I think it's really useful for us to look at that teaching with regard to anger. Usually when we look at um, our anger, if we look deeply, we can see something else underneath it. Um, our anger about the environment might um, be, the, be supported by our love of the planet. Our anger about the way people are treated may be supported by maybe first a layer of fear about others being harmed, but under that is compassion. So if we, if we, the sutra on putting an end to anger isn't about non-action. It's about not acting out of anger, putting an end to anger so that we can act out of, this is the way I hear it, so that we can act out of what's underneath it, the love or the compassion, or something else. But our heart's true intention, bodhicitta, And anger, it's like getting caught in a rushing river. Before we know it, we're downstream. And most of the time, we lost the paddle on the way. So we want to be really careful with our anger and, and take care of it. The 
but I think also we can use that teaching to look at these more subtle um, forms of aggression and violence and difficulties so that um, there may be, we may see something rising up in us that is um, like maybe even just a pointed joke that's just going to needle somebody, right? And, and maybe it's okay to needle that particular person, right? It depends on your relationship. I, I think there's some people in here I can needle and they'd be fine. There's some people in here who um, I wouldn't be skillful if I were needling. Um, so different, more subtle forms, different, more subtle forms of violence or emotions, I think, can also fit into that in our relationships, looking at the, the five ways of putting it into anger. How, is it, how are we focused? And, and that that can, um, that teaching can be useful in a lot of other situations, and once again, in, in, internally as well. I think in the meditation we just did, we looked at, I sandwiched um, the difficulties with positive stuff. So if we look at a particular difficulty and we're not in a safe space, and we don't have it taken care of with mindfulness and compassion, then we can cause a lot of harm to ourselves and others. So I think we have to be careful about how we look at not just anger, but other emotions, especially if we're directing it internally. One of, one of our now belated Dharma teachers, Bill Minza, wrote a poem that, um, that I find useful. I, don't, I, don't, I probably have a copy of the poem, but um, this is, it's a practice. And so more than the poem, for me, the practice is useful in looking at other people and not trying to fix them, in, as Deborah Adele described. But... Um, looking at the other person and just saying, that's me. It's the spirit of Tai's poem on interbeing, which was referred to yesterday, um, and that um, was, um, I don't think we read the poem in the touchings of the earth, but it was referenced in the um, in the readings to recognize that we are not just 
one thing that we are all things, it comes back to. It comes back to the practice of emptiness and to recognize that this is the way it is because of certain causes and conditions. And it's not just true for um, the country or the world. It's true for every individual who's in front of us. said, I am here because you are there. And for each of us, we are who we are and where we are for so many reasons that don't need to be fixed. But but when we see ourselves or others causing suffering. Maybe I shouldn't assume since I got it wrong last time, but I want to fix it. I think a lot of us do. And we have to decide whether to whether to act um, Sometimes it has to be immediately, and sometimes it, we have spaciousness. But we have to decide how we want to be in the world and what footprint we want to leave in the world. And all that depends on how we take care of ourselves and how we see others. So using Bill's practice to say, that's me. Can I look at someone who is radically different than I am on some issues. I can come up with family members who fit that description. My family in Georgia. me. And maybe that enables us to open our heart a little bit more and let go of judging the person. Let go of one of the things recognized as the Buddhist fetters, which is the um, complexes, the comparing mind. I am better than you, I am less than you, or I am equal to you. Well, what's left? Except that I am you. These are the habits and energies of our minds. These are the, these are the things that are fed to us constantly if, we are, if we're not aware of what's happening. We live in a society where blame is important, not necessarily responsibility, which I think is different. But who can I blame for this? I know when my father died, I remember, um, I, I didn't know he'd been sick. It was in the days when 
He didn't tell kids. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't want his patients to know. And uh, at 11, I was 11 when he died, 9 when he got sick, apparently. Um, there was no way that I was going to just guess from hints or even understand what was happening. That, that's one of the things that makes me capable of understanding certain things in a different way because I've had a similar experience. And it seems to me likely that um, for those who we may think are so different from us, that we, there is something in common somewhere. There's a practice um, that a Cherokee woman shared with me um, where we do a meditation in order to um, alleviate our separateness so much. And it has to do with a meal because it's really hard, except at Thanksgiving, I think, maybe, to argue with people over a meal. But um, so you imagine, and you can do it as a meditation, imagine a feast. It can be any feast you want. You can have whatever foods you want. It can be on a picnic blanket. It can be in an elegant dining room with a fabulous chandelier of crystal. Uh, It can be in a courtyard under an arbor with grapevines going across the top or maybe by the lake. Set the table for your feast. And then you say to those you love, come to the table. You're welcome. Please come. And you do it in the spirit, uh, same spirit we use for meta. So then you invite those that you may have felt neutral about. And finally you invite those with whom you have difficulty, please come to my table. You are welcome. I find it a useful practice to engage in um, with specific people that I know, not politicians or strangers who've upset me, but with people I know. That's where I have to start. And I know one time I was doing it, and I was I was having um, a difficult time with with an order of interbeing sister. And so as I did it, and she was included, you know, I got to her and I said, "Please come to my table. You are welcome." But would you sit over there? But still. You know, it was a step. It was a step that we had to... So you recognize what you're capable of, too, in this kind of practice. What can we offer to others? And how can we recognize that resting in what is, what is here can give us everything we need? We don't need that 
Osprey to stitch sea to sky with its barred wings, or a shaft of stun, sun to stir the gray porridge of clouds. Such a nice image. We don't need one more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket of dried grasses. As if joy weren't strewn all around. We don't need to find a better way for someone else. We say in the mindfulness trainings we'll help others renounce fanaticism and intolerance through compassionate speech, compassionate speech and deep listening. prescribing a change for that person, that this is the best thing. Let me help you. <laughs> now, actually, isn't I think there's a lot of tension in the language of the mindfulness trainings. I think they're, they're absolutely wonderful and they sing with my heart. But there's also tension in there. So if we've got the teachings on the complexes, and I'm going to say, let me help you renounce your fanaticism and intolerance, I don't know. I'm sure there's an explanation for that. Maybe Rowan can give it to us this afternoon. But if, I think if we're really going to move lovingly in the world, we have to trust others' ability to find the right solutions, which is not about an action. Martin Luther King talks about, or talked about, when he um, went to, in the 1950s, he went to India and met with Gandhi and recognized the, um, the incredible power of acting totally out of love, of acting nonviolently, but not sitting still, working for justice. I say all that because I don't want you to understand that I interpret aimlessness to be just lolling on the beach. There's a time for that. But aimlessness is about our heart and our heart's orientation. And if we can sit quietly with our suffering... and embrace it. It has the capacity to transform without our pulling it apart. The tulip flower will open when the sun comes out. We can also pull the petals apart. It's not the same. 
So I hope that um, in this um, few days we've been here, I really do have a hard time figuring out how long we've been here. It feels longer than it has been. But I hope that we I hope that we've reached a point of settling so that we can really be present with what's what's here. The joy that's strewn all around. There's confetti out there is what that brings. <laughs> the joy that's strewn all around. And you know, we know all you need is love. <laughs> 